Hey, this is Steve. This podcast is all about making the gospel relevant to your life. That means discovering the good news of Jesus, no matter what we're going through today. And we go through a lot. Most of us are under stress, under pressure all the time. And we feel like Jesus doesn't really understand what we're going through today. His expectations seem to be too high. But Mark tells us the story of how Jesus actually does know what we're going through. In fact, he's dealt with it more than you ever will. What does that mean for how we respond when the pressure is on? How many of you guys had a good week this week? Okay, three of you. That's great. Uh, I had kind of a stressful week. I'll be honest. It was kind of stressful for me. I mean, you guys know I take this seriously, right? I take the preaching of the Word of God real serious. I don't don't treat it lightly. I believe that it's my job to accurately handle the Word of God. And um, I, I, I believe I'm speaking for God here. And who in the world am I? Uh, to do that. So I take it really seriously. That means I invest a lot of time into each sermon. I don't just kind of stand up here and ramble off the top of my head. I make sure that I'm hearing from God first. And so I take time. I, I, I plan into my schedule time to study, to prepare, to research, to pray. Uh, I have all that. So, you know, usually I'm kind of in a daze on Sunday afternoon uh, once we're done with three services. And so I don't really do much on Sunday. Monday, we got staff meetings last most of the morning, and then we have a little lunchtime, and then I've got meetings in the afternoon. Tuesday, I try to block it off. There's nothing that happens on Tuesday for me except for tying up loose ends from the previous week and starting to really study and prepare for the coming week. You know, I I know what passage I'm in, uh, what section I'm going to be doing. Maybe I have some general ideas, but I start to kind of really narrow in and focus in on where we're going. Usually I spend most of the day on Tuesday kind of working that. I find that the best thing for me is to put all my kind of content together on Tuesday. I I usually end up with about a four-hour long sermon on Tuesday. So, uh, yeah, really. So I sleep on it. And then on Wednesday, Thursday, I try to kind of cut out all the extra and and bring it down to something that's going to make sense in an appropriate amount of time. Uh, And I start putting my little fill-in-the-blanks together and all that kind of stuff. Because I got a hard deadline, man. On Friday morning, first thing, I got to get all of my stuff to Annie so so she can produce all the things for you so that you can have the fill-ins and, you know, we can do all the stuff. So, um, you know, I got a pretty hard deadline and, you know, deadlines bring stress, you know, because there's sometimes when my Tuesday doesn't go the way I want it to go and I got other things that pop up or my Wednesday or my Thursday and, and sometimes I'm, I'm working late, late into the evening on Thursday trying to get my fill-in-the-blanks done and to Annie before Friday morning. Sometimes sometimes I'm feeling the pressure and I'm up late at night or I'm up early in the morning and I just, sometimes I'm, I'm worried, no, 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 honey, I can't do this. I gotta, I gotta focus on my message. It brings, you know, deadlines bring stress, don't they? just the way it is. And so I go through all that. I mean, all of us have to deal with stress in our lives sometimes, but this week was a little different. You know, normally I've got a a degree of stress with that deadline, but it was last Sunday that my friend Roger Glidewell, um, 
who is the camp director and camp pastor up at Global Youth Ministry. He called me up and he said, hey, Steve, this is the last week of camp and I'm really sick. I don't think I can preach. Can you preach for me this week at camp? I'm like, you mean this week meaning tomorrow? <laughs> and he's like, well, yeah, uh, tomorrow and then twice on Tuesday and twice on Wednesday and maybe twice on Thursday. Could you do that? And I'm like, uh, can I bring my own stuff? Can I, can I talk us through the first little bit of Mark? That would help me. He said, nope, we're doing a theme, and uh, I need you to stay on the theme. I need you to preach through First Samuel this week. No pressure. I'm like, oh, okay. He said, don't worry. I'll send you everything you need so you can kind of just, you know, do what, you know, it'll be good. I'm like, okay, send it to me. So later on that evening, I got an email from him, and for each sermon, he gave me a chapter and a title. <laughs> so all week I've got my head down I'm praying, I'm reading through I'm preparing, I'm writing sermons And I'm just, man, I'm just doing the best I can To keep up, it was crazy all week And I'm up on the mountain, there's all the kids up there And it's just crazy I was going back and forth and back and forth And it was just, it just really added to my stress Plus I had to teach on Friday night at Celebrate Recovery So this week, man, I've, I've been preaching all week long And I'm hoping to bring something decent today But it's been stressful because I take it seriously so it's been really really kind of stressful for me this week you, you know what it's like to be stressed out don't you I mean, we got all kinds of things in our lives that stress us out. Sometimes it's your job, and there's a deadline there. Sometimes it's the people that you work with or your boss that causes stress. Sometimes it's pressure to perform in some way. Maybe it's a family situation where there's tension and it causes stress. Sometimes, sometimes it's just a stage of life. Right, All you young mamas know what I mean about stage of life stress. Am I right? Because I got a picture, for me at least, of what stress looks like. Look at this picture of stress right here. Yeah. <laughs> That's my granddaughter uh, at lunchtime. And I look at that, and some people might go, oh, how cute. I'm like, no, let's get out the pressure washer. Something's <laughs> got to change here. I mean, she was wearing it all. Look, it's in her, in her, uh, by her eye. It's just, uh, it's all over the place. So, stress. We all deal with stress. Am I right? Yeah, but yet Jesus calls us to a life of peace. He calls us to be above all of the stress and all the strain. You know, the number one thing that, that we hear from you on our staff is that there is just stress and anxiety in our lives these days. It seems like anxiety and stress have just kind of taken over us, and, and it seems like all of us are struggling, whether it's social interaction or whether it's being in a large crowd or whether it's what might happen or what might not happen. We just get the stress and the anxiety that just piles all up on us. It's tough, yet Jesus calls us to live a life of peace. And here we are post-COVID, and everything causes stress. Everything causes anxiety. Is it possible, this is the first blank on your page, is it possible that Jesus couldn't understand modern stress and anxiety? 
Is it possible that Jesus couldn't understand? I mean, he calls us to peace, but he had no idea what we would go through. I mean, when he's calling his people to peace, he's talking to first century, you know, desert dwellers who had nothing better to do. They didn't have cell phones and the internet. They didn't have the stress and the pressure that we've got on us. We all deal with stress and pressure, anxiety all over us. And when you have anxiety, when you have stress, you know what happens. It undermines who you want to be. It undermines your confidence. It undermines your morality. It undermines your emotional and your spiritual well-being. That's why Jesus calls us to be people of peace. So Jesus has to deal with stress himself. And I want us to look today as we look at this passage in Mark, in Mark chapter 3 as we're studying today. I want us to look at how Jesus deals with anxiety and stress in his life. We see it right off the bat in verse 7 when we pick up our study, Mark chapter 3. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea. He got away from it. What's he getting away from? Do you remember last week's study? He's been in the synagogue, and what's happened there? He's healed a man with a withered hand, and now all of a sudden, you know, all his people are starting to push back. Everybody's starting to push back. His own people are becoming non-cooperative. They're like, well, why aren't your disciples fasting? Why are you harvesting grain on the Sabbath? And how dare you heal on a rest day? Everybody's pushing back. His own people have become non-cooperative, and, and even the leaders are starting to think about killing him. So the pressure is on Jesus. There are demands being made of him. In fact, that's been the case everywhere he goes. Even when he goes to the synagogue, people are making demands. People are coming to him sick, withered hand, unhealthy, and they want to be healed. The pressure is on Jesus, so he withdrew. He withdrew with his disciples. Hey guys, come on, let's let's get let's get out of here. They're talking about killing me. Let's let's back away. Let's let's just get away. And so he and his disciples, now these these aren't the twelve disciples, they're just the group of people that are following closely with him. His twelve were yet to be selected. So it's the group of people following him. They tried to get some space. They tried to withdraw from everyone. But look what happens in Mark 3, 7. Jesus withdrew with his disciples, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Emmaia and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. So this great crowd begins to follow him. I want for Jesus in Galilee, and the scholars all say that Galilee was heavily populated in that day before the Romans drove all the Jews out of the area in 70 AD. It was heavily populated. That's why today, Dan, you and I can walk around Galilee, and there's ruins of cities no longer occupied all over the place. It's because it used to be heavily populated. And the scholars say that this crowd, this great crowd that is following Jesus when he's trying to withdraw, it could have been, you know, not dozens, not hundreds, not even thousands. They're saying it could have been stronger than 10,000 people 
coming after Jesus at this moment. A huge crowd of people all wanting something from Jesus. Sounds like a recipe for stress and anxiety, doesn't it? Everybody wants something from him. Touch me, heal me, you know, do something for me, Jesus. And not only that, but that stress would be compounded because look at the description of the people coming. They're coming not just from Galilee. In fact, I want to look at a map here and see kind of what this passage is telling us. We've looked at the map of Jesus' ministry so far. He's here up in the area of Galilee, the northern part of Israel. And his ministry's all been right around here. He's been throughout Galilee preaching and teaching. And his headquarters is here in Capernaum, right beside the Sea of Galilee. So he's kind of been a local phenomenon up to this point. But this passage tells us that now people are coming from other areas. In fact, we got to kind of zoom out to see where they're coming from. So here's that same area and the Sea of Galilee right here. And you see that now people aren't just coming from this area, but they're coming from down south in Judea and from Idumea. These people aren't just, you know, hey, let's, I hear there's a crowd forming. Let's go out and see what's going on. These are people that have to plan a trip. They, they got to they plan it out. They got to pack all their supplies. And they got to plan to be gone for days. It's a multi-day journey each way from these areas up to Galilee. Now, the people that are coming after Jesus are people who are investing Something They're spending. They're stretching themselves to get to Jesus. They weren't just coming from here, but from up around Tyre and Sidon. They were coming from the north as well, and also from the other side of the Jordan. They were coming from all over the place, and they were investing into chasing after Jesus. And all of them were expecting Jesus to do something for them. Thousands and thousands of people. So the pressure is on. Lots of people with high expectations of Jesus. But not only that, look in verse 9. Verse 9 says that he told his disciples, Hey guys, have a boat ready because of the crowd, lest they crush him. This was such a crazy crowd that Jesus was worried they might crush him. I looked it up, and the word here for crush is the word crush. Shocking, I know. But it literally means to crush, to grind, or to smash. Jesus is worried he's going to be ground up underneath the pandemonium of the crowd. This is now mob mentality. Okay, it's not just a crowd, it's an insane crowd trying to press into Jesus. Look what it says. It says he had healed many so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. So not only is it mob mentality with the crowd, but most of them, or at least a lot of them, are sick. They're the filthy sick ones pressing all in. And there's no COVID protocols. There's no masks. There's no latex gloves. They aren't wearing face shields. There's germs everywhere. How's that for a recipe for stress and anxiety? And these people are all pressing all in, all around Jesus with their germs, with their filth, all wanting something from him. Thousands and thousands of them. And wait, there's more. In verse 11 and 12, it says, And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. Don't don't tell anybody. 
wait, don't make me known. Wait a minute, aren't they all there because they know that it's Jesus and he's healing people? Actually, I think this ought to be a big tip-off to us. This is what we always see Jesus doing, right? We always see Jesus saying, um, shut, 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 shut up about it. Mm, keep it quiet. The demons are always saying, I know who you are. And he's saying, mm, mm, don't talk about it. He's always healing somebody and, you know, withered hand straightened out or, or whatever it is. And they're like, oh, this is amazing. And he's like, mm, shh, don't, don't tell anybody. This is always Jesus' pattern until the big change happens later on in the story when everything about what Jesus does changes. Later, you'll see him saying, you're healed, great, go tell everybody. Oh, you've been cast out, oh, great, make sure everybody knows. All of a sudden, everything he does changes later at that big turn, which we'll look at when we get to it. But for now, this really ought to tip us off that he doesn't want them to make it known what his true identity is. This ought to show us that these people aren't coming for who Jesus is. They're coming for what they can get out of him. They're coming to Jesus for the signs and the wonders, not for knowing him. They're coming to Jesus for all the wrong reasons. Is that us today? Do we come to Jesus because of what we want? I mean, I, I listen to our own prayers sometimes. You know, when we pray, let's pray together. Dear God, please. And we start asking. We start saying, just give me this, give me that. It seems a lot of times that we only come to him to get something out of him. How often do we begin our prayer time with just praising him, thanking him for who he is and what he's done, recognizing that he's God, that he's the authority, and that we're not, and we're just grateful to be able to come into his presence. Now, we come and we say, Dear Heavenly Father, please, and we start listing our demands to him. So everybody's coming to him, and they're coming to him for apparently the wrong reasons. And it's crazy. There's demonic oppression going on. There's, uh, he's face-to-face -face with demons, and the crowd is going crazy all over the place. Let's just make sure, let's make sure we look at the list of what all Jesus is dealing with at this time. We see that the religious people, his own people, have become non-cooperative. We see that people are coming from all over the countryside looking for him, investing. This is a big deal that they're traveling to him. We see that mob mentality has, has taken over everything, that there are demon encounters that he's having, and that the religious people are now talking about killing him. Jesus should be under a lot of stress. And you think he doesn't understand what we go through today? Look at what he had to deal with. Holy cow, he should be stressed out. Does he understand what we're going through today? Here's the next blank on your page. He not only understands, but he defeated it. He defeated the whole concept of stress in his life. That's why Hebrews 4 says, This high priest of ours understands our weaknesses, for he faced all the same testings that we do, yet he did not sin. 
He dealt with all of the pressure of this world, and he didn't cave to it. He didn't give into it. He didn't make a bad decision. He didn't freak out. He didn't storm off. He didn't lay into somebody. He had the stress on him, and he did not sin. And it wasn't even this only chaos level of stress. This doesn't even count the temptation that he had to deal with for 40 days. It doesn't count the false accusations that always were coming against him. It doesn't count the challenges from his own people or the challenges from demons or the betrayal of one of his very own or the scourging, the beating that he took or the crucifixion. Good grief. He knew Stress, but it never got to him. Praise the Lord, right? So how does Jesus deal with that stress? What does he do to keep it from knocking him down? What does he do to not let it get from him, but instead to remain focused and to be who he's supposed to be, to accomplish his mission, and to become the most important figure in human history? How does he do this? Look what he does. Look what he does next. Mark 3, 13, he went up on the mountain and he called to him those whom he desired and they came to him. He somehow got away from the crowd. He somehow got away from the chaos and he went up on the mountain. He called his disciples, come on guys, let's, let's go, let's get out of here. And somehow they were able to get away from the crowd and to get up on the mountain. Now, if you read ahead one verse... Mark makes it look like Jesus takes his group of disciples up on the mountain, and that's where he makes his picks. He selects the ones that are going to be the apostles. And Mark makes it look like, well, they, they went up so he could do this. Remember, Mark writes in a very succinct style, and he leaves out a lot of details because he wants to get a particular message across. But Mark isn't the only gospel writer. And Luke tells us about this same story. He doesn't give us the information about the chaos, crazy, mob mentality, but he does tell us about Jesus going up on the mountain and choosing the apostles. And I think what Luke says about it is real important for us to understand. So in Luke 6, here's what Luke says. One day, Jesus went up on a mountain to pray, and he prayed to God all night and at daybreak he called together all of his disciples and he chose 12 of them to be his apostles so he's not getting them away up on the mountain and that was crazy did you see all that crazy crowd all right we got to do something else um I need some helpers I need some apostles some disciples so it's going to be you and you and not you but you and you and you okay got you got it okay let's go it, it makes it kind of feel that way in Mark, but Luke is really clear that before Jesus makes this big decision, what does he do? He prays all night. Mark and the other gospel writers make it very clear that this is Jesus's pattern. He's always, he's always using this strategy to deal with whatever's going on in his life. And here it is, next blank on your page. Jesus' strategy is to spend intentional time away with God. He intentionally gets away and he gets some space from the stress, some space from the mob, and he focuses in on his walk with his 
father this is his strategy and it's serious he doesn't make a crazy decision about who's going to be on his team without carefully seeking God's voice and making sure that he's synchronized up with his father in order to do that he gets time away with God we talked about this a little bit last week we talked about the importance of the Sabbath and we talked about how the Sabbath the the time of rest the time away the space away from everything else is really really important to our physical our spiritual and our emotional well-being you know I got some Christian brothers and sisters uh, who insist that you know God's covenant with us is that we will observe the Sabbath on Saturday, the seventh day, not Sunday, the first day. You know, they say that we got we to do that. And I'm like, well, no, that's old covenant. That's in the old covenant, not the new covenant. And they're like, well, actually, the Sabbath, seventh day being holy, is something that God pronounced long before there was a covenant with people. It was this observance that God himself had and said that this day, this seventh day rest, this is holy. So you should do this. Why do you do what you do on Sunday when you should be doing it on Saturday? And I got to look in the New Testament. And what I see there is that um, in Acts, what I see there is that the, the early Christians, they began worshiping God together on what day? Sunday. They began worshiping on Sunday after the resurrection, which happened on a, what day did the resurrection happen on? Sunday. They started worshiping on that. They began to call that day the Lord's day. So what's going on here? Did they miss something and we're still holding on to their tradition? I, I want you got to be real careful when you look at this because those early Christians were from a particular ethnic group. What were those early Christians? They were all Jews at first, right? For the first 10 or so years, they were pretty much all Jewish people. So they were raised in the Jewish culture. Everybody around them were practicing the Jewish religion. And so what you see in Scripture is they actually met together in the temple and in homes. They met every day. They met all the time. But what you see is they practiced Sabbath. Those early Christians practiced rest on Saturday, and then they met together to worship God corporately on Sunday. To me, this makes total sense. God said, you will rest on the seventh day. Seventh day is a gift to you. It's a day where you stop everything, you get some space, you withdraw, and you rest. That's what the seventh day is for. Sunday's a different day. It's the first day. And what do we do with our first fruits? What? We give it to God. So we take a day of rest, and we give a day to worship and serve Him. Right? Isn't that what we do here? I mean, if, if Sunday is a Sabbath day, I'm in deep, deep trouble. And so is everybody on my staff, and so are all of our people that serve on teams here on Sunday. Because some of us get here, I got here at 6.15 this morning. 
Some of us get here at 6.30, 7 o'clock, and we're working it all day long, all the way through till the end of the last service, usually around 1, 1.30. And then we got to be back a lot of times for some kind of class or meeting or something in the evening. There's a big VIP meeting we got this evening right here in this room. And so, I mean, it's if Sunday is Sabbath, I'm in big trouble. So I try, to, I try to take Saturday as my day of rest because that's God's gift to me. And then I see Sunday as my gift to him. That's what we do is we worship him together. Does that make sense? We live in an amazing country where we even structure our work week that way. We work Monday through Friday so that we can have Saturday to rest and Sunday to give. That's the way we do it here. I'm so glad that we aren't so legalistic about the way that we rest. I told you when I was in Israel, they were so legalistic on Sabbath, you couldn't push the elevator button because that's work. You can't cook stuff. You can't clean stuff. You can't carry a handkerchief. Literally, that's the rule. I'm grateful that on Saturday, I get to do stuff that I find very restful. I go on a long hike sometimes. I love going on a long walk. There's nothing more taking a break and resting to me than a long walk through the woods. Dude, I can tune out from all the stuff of this world. My mind becomes really clear, and I can tune into him when I rest that way. I'm glad we don't be legalistic, meticulous. I love, on Saturday, cooking a big meal for my wife and or my kids. I love it. I love doing that. There's something for me very restful and relaxing about having the griddle going or the grill going. I just love doing that. I enjoy that. It's restful. It's, it's peace bringing to me. Do you do something like that? Yeah? Do you love washing dishes on Saturday? Nope. <laughs> nope. <laughs> I don't mind it. There's something, there's something about just doing the menial thing that just... <sighs> I can just stop and not have to worry about all the stress. So I'm grateful that we practice Sabbath on Saturday and we give to God on Sunday. Next blank on your page is this. Sabbath rest is a built-in stress relief. It's something that God built into your week so that you would experience it. That's why God calls Sabbath a gift. In other words, if you're not taking a day to take a break, and to rest, you're stealing from yourself. And if you're not giving back to God on Sunday, if you're not giving to him first, then you're stealing from God. Huh? So, Jesus dealt in this way. He didn't always have a Sabbath. I mean, you can see that. They were harvesting on Sabbath. He was healing on Sabbath. I mean, he had a mission to accomplish. So Jesus intentionally carved out many little Sabbaths for him to get away with his father. And that's what we see him doing here. Jesus decided to get out of town and go up on the mountain. And he made sure that he spent time with his father before making this big decision of choosing his disciples. Couldn't we learn something here? Because how often in your life have you made big, life-critical decisions while under great stress? How often have you made a decision, a hard decision, that had bad consequences because you were under the stress of the moment. You know, you've made financial decisions because the car salesman was putting the pressure on you. 
And so you chose that much bigger payment than you should have been making. You made a bad decision because of stress, a bad decision because of pressure. You've made family decisions that way before. Somebody's on you, and you can't get out from under their stress, their pressure, and so you make a decision, and it ends up being a bad decision. You've made moral decisions because you felt the pressure to give in. I'm just going to give in this one time. I'm just going to do it this one time. Nobody's going to know, or my wife will never find out, or you know, they won't see me. And you've made moral decisions under pressure that have been catastrophic for you. How often do we allow the pressure of the environment or of the moment to speak louder than the Holy Spirit speaks into our lives? Hebrews 10 says this. It says, let us think of ways to motivate one another to acts of love and good works. And let us not neglect our meeting together as some people do, but encourage one another especially now that the day of his return is drawing near. It's saying that we should gather together and we should continue to always be thinking up new ways to encourage and motivate each other because all of us came into the room today dealing with some kind of stress, some kind of pressure. And this is where we find peace. This is where we find the presence of God, where two or more are gathered. That's where God's going to be. So let us always be gathering. Let us always be combining all of our spirit together so that we can worship him and so that we can find peace. Let us withdraw together. Because when we withdraw, that's when something supernatural happens to us. Right, every day, the natural, the pressures of the everyday keep coming and coming and piling up and pressing down. But it's when we gather, it's when we withdraw, that's when the supernatural happens. That's why it says in Hebrews 4, it says, Let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive his mercy, and we will find grace to help us when we need it most. Withdraw. Come to him. You have dealt with the stress and the pressure long enough. It's caused enough problems in your life. It's time for you to find peace. It's time for you to synchronize with him. It's time for you to get away, to stop, and to hear his still, small voice. Come to him. Use Jesus' strategy. Philippians 4 says, The Lord is at hand. He's close by. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Bring it to him because you can. You can bring it to him. He's waiting for you. Oh, what a privilege to be able to bring it to him. Because there was a time where you could not come to him. There was a time when you were literally banished from his presence, just like we were after the garden, right? Because we sinned, we rebelled, we committed treason against him. We were in the garden before that. We walked with him but once we sinned, he kicked us out of the garden, out of his presence. If you read the story, he puts a, an angel with flaming swords at the front of the gate to the garden 
so that no one can re-enter his presence. Sin is that severe to God. You don't come to God with your sin. You can't come to God with your sin because the wages of sin is death. And when you come before the judge and you're carrying sin, the sentence is pronounced. So we couldn't come into his presence. But God so loved the world that he sent Jesus out. He sent Jesus to us. He came to this world and that judgment that you had coming to you, the wages of sin is death, Jesus stretched out his arms and he took that punishment on your behalf. Right? He was beaten and nailed to that cross and with nails in his wrists and in his feet, he chose to take the punishment of your sin by being punished brutally on that cross and by dying in your place. The wages of sin is death. He died for us, and he went to the grave taking our sin with him. But three days later, he walked away from it. He walked out of that grave, and he lives today to bring you new life. You used to be a slave to the pressure and the stress of the moment, the pressure and the stress of the environment, but now he comes to give you abundant life. He's come so that you can experience the peace that he has for you. Amen? That's why Jesus says in Matthew 11, Come to me, all you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you what? I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you because I'm humble and gentle at heart and you will find rest for your souls. Come to him. Come to him. Come to him. Stop trying to navigate it all yourself. Find the time. You've been given this gift of Sabbath Stop cheating yourself and come to him and let him do what only he can do and do something supernatural in your life. My last blank is the same blank as it was last week. Abide in him. Abide in him. Let him be your peace bringer.